the idea of um, the black arts movement um, poetry that was relatable um, in every day, but also um, had a a level of creativity with the use of language that I can't say I didn't I ne had never heard because a lot of it was vernacular, um, African American vernacular, which I knew very distinctly. But to see it and hear it on page, um, it was just a, a different type of experience and opened up uh, an, the idea of what art was and could be. And I think that was the, the first um, fissure for me uh, to start to understand what the potential of art was. That was Lamont Hamilton. He's an interdisciplinary artist who's interested in exploring the things beyond our sensorial understanding. When he was young, he drew portraits of figures that he admired. Jimi Hendrix, Che Guevara, Malcolm X. He called it scribble art, a term he invented to describe abstract art that, the longer you look at it, the more it reveals. Then, as he got older, he became interested in photography. But he says that his first love, the one that he considers to be the foundation of his work, is poetry. He says that a lot of what he does cannot easily be translated to words. It needs to be experienced and understood through our senses. To sit with it and to meditate on it opens us up to its energies and allows ideas to gravitate toward us. When this happens, we create a situation that nurtures a deeper conversation with the world around us. Right now, he's in residence at the Anchorage Museum, working with poets, artists, and musicians, and developing a light and sound installation called To Hear the Earth Before the End of the World. It features sounds of elements, air, earth, fire, water, and ether, and field recordings from Europe and North and South America, sounds of our changing earth. He says that, unlike a painting, this exhibition is an experience that encounters you, you don't encounter it, because it's going to be playing whether you're there or not. So here he is, Lamont Hamilton. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North, through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. We were talking about coffee. What kind of coffee do you have? Well, it's not really that. <laughs> it's not really that exciting. Um, <laughs> it's a. Uh, I've been drinking decaf lately because caffeine has just not been my friend lately. Um, and I just get this instant decaf. I forget the name of it, but it's actually pretty good. It's um, a CO2 processed uh, decaffeination. Um, it's instant, so I can just easily just put in some hot water and, and ready to go. Uh, how I make coffee or how, how I made coffee before was always more traditional. I'm kind of a coffee connoisseur. So I, I do, uh, you know, different traditional ways of, of, of doing it, not uh percolator type thing, but um, French press and um, I forget the, the name of the little metal uh, canister that you, you make it with. Um, 
Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I do the whole thing. Grind. The only thing I don't do is roast. Um, okay. But I do the whole thing, grinding fresh beans and, and really being selective of the beans I get. But because um, to me, it's all about the flavor. I'm, I'm, I really like the flavor of coffee, which is the reason why I do decaf now instead of caffeinated and just not cutting it out all together. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a good brand. I, I can I can uh, email you the brand if you're interested in a really good instant decaf coffee. <laughs> you know, um, just a minute ago, you said that you, you switched to decaf because the caffeine was messing with you. In what way was it messing with you? I'm, I'm a bit of the opposite in in various ways. I'm, maybe it's just my contrarian nature, but um, caffeine makes me sleepy and it kind of makes me lethargic. Uh, whereas other people, it gets them amped up and ready to go. For me, it just makes me want to sit on the couch. So um, I realized it more and more, and I just decided to, you know, give it give it a rest. But but interesting enough. It, caffeinated tea doesn't bother me and i do um every once in a while cacao um ceremonial cacao and and the caffeine content and that doesn't bother me that much you it's just coffee and i think it's just a, a case of it becoming so popular nowadays um the different ways in which beans are made uh it just kind of started messing with me yeah, that's interesting because I didn't drink coffee until I became an adult. So I didn't start drinking coffee regularly until like, let's say, 29, 28 years old. Oh, wow. And I'm 34 now. And so now I I have like a cup of coffee in the morning or an espresso in the morning. And then usually uh, maybe one more cup of coffee later in the day or maybe two cups of tea throughout the day because you know sometimes uh you can drink too much caffeine and it's hard to sleep (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i found that out the hard way too um i don't necessarily realize the difference other than what i just said but oftentimes when i drink coffee after two o'clock you know i'm I'm up until four or five o'clock in the morning oh man Um, okay you know it's the case where you're your brain's tired. Well, your body's tired, but your brain is still pretty active. So understanding all that, I I had to, I knew what my battle was and and I had to just, you know, cut it out. Are you the type of person, because I know I'm like this, where it's really tough to turn off your brain? Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. I've, I've had to kind of employ different, um, meditation techniques especially late at in in the evening time in order to kind of rest um because my brain is always active so i'm always thinking about something you know um mm-hmm. just a big something you know uh and and yeah it can it can be a little difficult to turn off sometimes so i've had, i've learned tricks over the years to to be able to get some semblance of re- relaxation during the, the evening time, especially, but I'm a night owl anyway. So, um, largely I wasn't, didn't pay too much attention to it because it was just my nature. I'm always up until two, three, four o'clock in the morning sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and being out in Alaska, especially in the summertime doesn't help, you know, um, whereas still daylight, <laughs> you know, at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, you know, 
So, uh, yeah, my brain is just like, uh, well, let's go outside. <laughs> it's still light out. Yeah. <laughs> when did you notice that, um, you know, the coffee was affecting you? You know, you said that you've always been a night owl. So I wonder if there was a point where you're like, okay, coffee's kind of keeping me up longer than I would like to be up. I think it was kind of a, a merge of many experiences that made me realize that. I mean, it's kind of like also um, I had to cut gluten out of my, my diet because of the kind of avalanche of different experiences that made me zero in like, okay, I think I have a gluten intolerance. Um, yeah, it was just a case where general feeling in my brain, but also my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it wasn't very hard to, to pinpoint what it was. I, I eat pretty clean, um, and drink pretty, pretty clean. So, um, it was really easy to, to pinpoint it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty lucky. I have, uh, had to cut things out of my diet as I've gotten older because, you know, you just get older and your body becomes less tolerant of like pizza and cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. um, it's, it's taken me, I mean, it's been a process for me to be able to cut those things out because they were such a staple of my, you know, teenage and college years. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I don't know if it's original or unique statement, but it was told to me years ago um, about eating for um, health and and not eating for taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of been using that um, in my daily practice um, for a while now. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that out there that just taste great, you know, yeah. <laughs> pizza and things like that. I've been a vegetarian since uh, 16, so okay. can't speak too much on hamburgers, <laughs> cheeseburgers. <laughs> but, you know, um, every once in a while, a, a dairy-free, gluten-free pizza, I, I still kind of consume it. But, yeah, you just start to f- realize things that taste good don't necessarily make your body feel good. And things that don't really taste that great have you feeling great <laughs> so it's yeah. a trade you know um but to each his own i mean i i've learned not to advocate for everyone else and just understand how my body works because all bodies are different you know so um just analyzing how i feel and 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 applying it to myself and if anyone's interested i i let them know what i do but i don't try to put it on anyone you know do you feel like you've always been like that? Yeah, I think um, it's part of my upbringing. Um, you know, I, I come from a family of people who, um, especially my grandparents, who who are very selective about the things that they put in their bodies. I mean, they had gardens and they, they bartered for different things from farmers around. I was born in Kansas. So I speak uh, when I speak of my upbringing, a lot of times I'm talking about that, uh, those young days there and things I've observed or things I remember um, or memories that came back to me over the years, uh, even if I wasn't conscientious of them for a while, but they made sense after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just the the fact of growing up in a household in which my grandparents were very self-sufficient, especially my grandmother who, who was a chef and um, made her own jams and made her own everything. Um, and 
you know, you just kind of adapt those different ways. I mean, clearly when we go through our young years and teenage years, we start to, you know, do the McDonald's and all that stuff. Though yeah. I shouldn't say that name because I, I guess I just promoted them. But um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we can get a check from them. But uh, maybe maybe not if, what I'm about to say. But yeah, you start to realize all the things that taste good aren't good for you, are necessarily good for you. Um, and that there are things that taste really good that are really good for you. And you just start to weed all that out. But once again, eating for general health instead of flavor, um, keep the candy away. Mm -hmm. I know that when we talked the other day, you said that your biography or your personal history doesn't really inform your work, but do you remember if there was a piece of art or a performance that you saw when you were young that inspired you or stuck with you for one reason or another? Well, kind of like you and coffee, me and art, um, I was a late bloomer. Um, I don't even remember going to a museum in my teenage years. I don't think it was until my early 20s in which I actually went into a museum. Um, art was around, but I come from a very blue-collar um, uh, upbringing. So there was things, I mean, there was art on the wall and things like that, but it wasn't necessarily a part of my upbringing. It wasn't something that... Um, I can't say it wasn't valued, but it it wasn't, it was a luxury. Um, and it was a luxury that uh, my parents really didn't access, though they did. Because one of, I remember one of my uh, early fascinations with, two of my early fascinations, but one um, of, with drawing, because I always drew when I was, when I was younger. I mean, I, I, I drew, um, you know, like whatever any young kid would draw, like Michael Jordan and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that. But yeah. um, but I was I became interested in more or less abstraction um, because my mother had this. Uh, I don't know who I think it was a coworker who did it or gave it to her or whatever. Um, it was a kind of an abstract drawing of uh, a lion, but it was made with um, with a ballpoint pen. It was I called it scribble art because it looked like to me like a scribble, um, but then a, a figure emerged from it, and I was really fascinated by that. And I started to do these things I called scribble art and portraits of different figures that I admired over the years, like Jimi Hendrix and Che Guevara and mm -hmm. Malcolm X, and you know all type of. I just started doing that, and that was kind of more or less me getting into or starting to really think about what, though I wouldn't call it art at the time, it was just fun. Um, and I was really into comic books too, so I would kind of do that type of stuff. But then uh, I encountered um, the photography of Gordon Parks, and that was a product of also being from Kansas. Um, he made it his, his measure when he was alive to make sure that his his work was viewed by Kansans, especially black Kansans. I don't know um, what the overall mission statement was with that, but overall you can encounter his work in any library because he would routinely put exhibitions up in, in public spaces like libraries and things like that. Um, so I remember encountering his work really young. I don't really know how old, but um, I was just impressed by it because 
I hadn't really looked at photography like that or thought about photography like that. And I don't think I knew what I was looking at was photography. It was just um, these captured moments, which I found very interesting. Um, and that, yeah, that's kind of one of the early impressions of art that I, I knew. But these were all my my doings. And I remember just going to the library and being looking at different magazines and um books and art books and and I shouldn't say it but uh stealing pages out of, of those <laughs> those <laughs> things uh, especially art books um had there's a painter um a Caribbean painter who I can't remember his name now I actually re-encountered the work a couple years ago and it just brought back memories but it was a really beautiful um surrealist type painting of a forest scene and if I remember correctly, it was like a, a rabbit that was burrowed, but you can see um, the rabbit kind of sleeping underground. And the overall scene was just magical to me. And I remember taking that, that page out of the book and, um, and I had it under my pillow uh, for a long time and I would kind of look at it before I went to bed. Um, so these kind of accumulations of encounters with art was, um, really what informed things. And uh, as I got to my teenage, late teenage years, um, I started to pick up photography, you know, basically thinking about Gordon Parks at that time and, uh, and photographing. But the photography I did at the time was disposable cameras and, um, and instant cameras. And I just would photograph different things and get the, the cameras developed. Um, at Walgreens or Dwayne Reeves or wherever, um, you know, convenience store that, not convenience store, whatever those things are called that, that did film development and just kind of had this archive of different things that I, I photographed, but I didn't look at them as precious objects. I would routinely give them away or lose them or, you know, all these other things. And mm -hmm. it coincided with a time too, where I should say that my really first love and really what I consider all my quote unquote art making to be is poetry. Um, I remember encountering uh, poets of the black arts movement, specifically uh, Mary Baraka um, around like 15 or so, maybe 14, 15. And I was just so impressed by the use of language. One, I was really impressed by the use of, use of curse words in some of those poems, because <laughs> you know, before you, know, you taught poetry is all, um, the the Keats type thing, you know, um, and and it, that language was pretty, but I didn't really know what they were talking about. It reminds me of um, Gil Scott Heron has a, a poem or kind of an introduction to a poem via a live performance when he was talking about him being in, um, I guess, a poetry class growing up and, and reading his uh, poems that no one in the class knew what the words were like mm -hmm. they knew the words his his words like we knew these words individually but how they're put together on this page uh you know it's just like doesn't make any sense and then he remarked that one of the kids in the class was like you know this must be deep and so the understanding was if, if the more you didn't know about what was happening the more you just assumed that it is deep yeah um and that forecloses on a general experience, you know, um, 
But anyways, I'm kind of rambling right now, but the idea of um, the black arts movement, um, poetry that was relatable um, in every day, but also um, had a, a level of creativity with the use of language that I can't say I didn't, I ne had never heard because a lot of it was vernacular, um, African-American vernacular, which I knew very distinctly, but to see it and hear it on page, um, it was just a, a different type of experience and opened up uh, an, the idea of what art was and could be. And I think that was the, the first um, fissure for me uh, to start to understand what the potential of art was. And from there, I started writing poems and really copyright infringing on a whole bunch of other poets and, <laughs> and, and just trying to find my voice, you know, and, and, but once again, none of this, I didn't consider any of this stuff art. It was just a mode of expression, which I was used to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's someone playing music or someone, you know, grew up in the eighties. So someone doing anything of the rubric of hip hop, someone was always rapping or someone was always, uh, you know, doing some type of latest b-boy moves or mm -hmm. someone was uh, aspiring to be a DJ. Um, you know, these things happened. And then the older folks, you know, played music and some of them had instruments. And But like I said, all these were just a general expression um, that I just kind of grew used to. But I never, I never looked at it as being art. You know, I'm I'm kind of reluctant on exaltation of art um, from reality and saying, yeah, this is art, because it goes back to the, the Gil Scott Heron thing where the more um, unintelligible it is, the the more deep it is. And, and I, I don't really subscribe to that. But I do think things can be inarticulable, <laughs> if that's a word, um, in the way that really opens up the imagination and, and not um, doing so uh, to mask its lack of depth. Mm -hmm. You know, as I've gotten older, I personally prefer stuff that I understand and I feel like I, you know, I do a good amount of reading. I'm, you know, not lazy intellectually. And so when I encounter something that is, is like written or, um, that tends to be maybe like overly academic, I, I really try not to ignore it. I, I try to like really, you know, put my mind back into when I was in college and I, I understood that type of writing a little bit more, but I guess the, the type of stuff that I've always gravitated toward is the stuff that's written in like really plain English. And then it has a more of an impact, at least from my perspective. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I think for me, I gravitate to the things that I, I don't understand. Um, to me, it's like, I like the challenge of decoding um, because I recognize that if someone understands it, it's not magic, you know? Yeah. Um, there is something intelligible here. And just because I don't know what it means, that means I need to do the labor to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more, especially as I grew older, um, 
I became more and more um, interested in artists, um, mathematicians, uh, philosophers, whoever, um, who presented ideas which had me scratching my head for a second mm-hmm. and really trying to imagine what it is that they they were trying to communicate or what it is that they were communicating. Um, if it was like, for, for instance, a mathematical phenomenon or something like that. Um, and I, I like to credit um, this poet, uh, not this poet, a poet, a beautiful poet um, named Jay Wright, an elder poet. Um, when I first encountered his work, um, he has a series of books he's been, he's been writing since the 60s. Um, and he, his work has gone deeper and deeper into the metaphysical, though I don't know if he would say it in those terms. Um, and you can see remnants of it in his first book, um, The Homecoming Singer. But by the time I got to some of his more complex books, um, like... Uh, um, one that really gets me is uh, guides, guide signs, um, and and another one is music, masks, and measures. And his his I'm not I, I don't have all his books in front of him in front of me, and I'm terrible with bibliographies. But these are just two examples of of his writing that really goes deep into the esoteric and without explanation. Mm-hmm. It's up to you, the reader, to labor and find out what the references are um, in order to clearly understand the poems. And that is an accumulation of of what has been my kind of impulse intellectually anyways, which, um, like I said, with the decoding, if I read something in a page and I feel that I can't comprehend what's happening, then I, I have to research the different elements of it um, to make it make sense to me um, mm-hmm. and put the puzzle together. And then it just starts to open up. And I think that's also my love for mathematics. I mean, I figure if I had to live my life differently um, and start over with what I know now, I would probably have really ventured into the world of, of mathematics as uh, a life a life work. Um, I've always been fascinated by it and I was always good at it. Unfortunately, I just wasn't that interested in school growing up. I was, but I wasn't in it. It wasn't that I wasn't interested in the idea of school. I loved the idea of learning. I just didn't like the pace Mm -hmm. in which, uh, or even the structure of learning, traditional learning, um, especially in American society. Uh, I felt like I wasn't getting the full picture. Um, And I understand, I mean, young minds, you have to kind of ease them into certain complex ideas, but I wanted I wanted it all immediately, and um, and I wasn't getting that in school. Yeah, I I completely agree with uh, everything you said on on um, different positive levels, and and I think that I might have not been fair to myself earlier because I I will regularly read things I don't understand, but I always try to make sure that I give myself those. Um, maybe more fun fiction books as a break in between. Yeah. 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 And I can't even say that I, I have any uh, respite in fiction because <laughs> I tend to try <laughs> to find the most, most complex fiction I can, I can find. One of my favorite art, uh, authors is uh, 
Wilson Harris, uh, a Guyanese um, author who has been actually very informative of my latest body of work. But um, I just love how I, I've always been had an affinity for stream of conscious writing, though I wouldn't say his work is necessarily stream of conscious, but what he's trying to do is write from, um, he's trying to open up the subconscious and even kind of that kind of metaphysical uh, element and mystical element of, of our existence and lay it out in writing. So you routinely, you know, you might be in the character's dream space. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes it can be difficult to to know what's happening. But the genius of his writing is if you stay with it and go on that journey, it unfolds. And by the time you get to the end, you've gone on that journey with them. And, and I think for me, I feel much better after that. At least my mind feels more expanded and I see things in a different light. And I, I like that challenge and I like that um, revealing um, that happens uh, when you go into that space. In what way has Wilson Harris influenced your current work? Well, he has an essay called um, Music, of the Lin- Music of the Living Landscapes. And in it, it's a short essay in which he's kind of um, oscillating between his upbringing in Guyana and British Guyana and his um, his settlement in London and uh, the difference in the ecological difference between the two spaces um, but also the spiritual difference between the two spaces um, so it's a part lament it's a part kind of um, opening up of the continuities between nature and spaces. Mm-hmm. For instance, he, he speaks about, I guess, the River Thames um, and uh, kind of correlating that to a major river and, and uh, Guyana, which I forget the name of now, um, and how the water flows in a very specific way. And that sends him into this kind of sonic um, memory of the living landscape and he kind of moves between the two the living landscapes the music of the living landscapes from his upbringing to the mu- the mu- music or lack thereof of the living landscapes of this um, ultra modernized ultra industrialized um, city mm-hmm. uh, so that along with um a couple of other uh thought streams uh led me to to really think about the idea of the sonic um in in our world and it had always been a fascination of mine but a terrain in which i had been afraid to go down um because i knew it opened up a whole different can of worms that you know my lifestyle and the busyness of things i i I wasn't, uh, I didn't have time to go through, um, but, but I made a decision that it was time and, and started to really follow that path, um, several years ago and it's kind of led to, to here. So it's a roundabout way of saying how it influenced it. And because I don't have it in front of me with my notes, I, I can't be specific, but, um, that's a general way in which it had influenced, uh, this current work, 
but once again, going back to the complexity and uncoding, uh, decoding, I should say, of of complexity. And to me, sound was that last terrain for me. Um, I think visually, there's a lot of things I've able to I have been able to decode um, based on deep looking. Um, but then the idea of deep listening um, was a whole different. Uh, I hate to say the word, but frontier. <laughs> um, and and I was excited to see what was in that that space, but not in the extractive type way, but in the in a more expedition um, type way, you know. Mm-hmm. As I was going through your work, I and let me know if this is completely off the mark, but I felt like a lot of it involves deconstructing these these complex things in order to convey them in in a way that might be more understandable to people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm a tinkerer. Okay. <laughs> so I'm one of those people who likes to figure out how things work. Um, I'm very fascinated, for instance, by wristwatches because I just think, especially like automatic or um, manual watches that you have to wind and mm-hmm. the just the intricate mechanics behind it. I mean, to me, I, I love that. Um, and I guess that whole idea of, of it isn't so much to, to, I guess, unlock it so people can understand it more. Um, for me, it's just that's a way for me to understand it more, okay. for me to process it and and figure things out and you know kind of put one two and two together, um, and I get so excited about about it that uh, oftentimes it turns into a project in which I do share, but then there's a a large part of it that um, for me is still um, very inarticulable um, and. That space is the future projects or the future iterations of the projects. The more I kind of start to decode and and articulate these intricate um, elements of things, the more it expands into uh, kind of ideas. Um, and to me, there's a sense of um, I don't. I guess I don't want to say mystical element or even spiritual element because I think that how I'm referring to it internally is not how it's generally viewed or it, it, I think they could be too complex or it's viewed in various ways externally that I, I don't want it to be disassociated, misassociated with, um, or disassociated from. Uh, so, but I, I will say it reluctantly, the mystical and spiritual, um, kind of, workings of things um has always been a fascination of mine and and i feel like the more i delve into it and the more i kind of put myself in that kind of interstitial space put myself more in that uh the the liminality of things and um so forth and so on uh the more i i'm able to express it um and i express it simply for myself um it's a need to create something that is as natural as dreaming, you know, uh, for me. And just the idea of opening up to people for experience is, is just my way of sharing 
this thing that I'm interested in and saying, hey, I found this fascinating. I think you will too. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I open it up for that, you know. So there is no mark to be missed. Um, it's, it's all open. Um, and I, I kind of take in a, a, a practice of ending my emails with always, always, um, which basically is me saying that, you know, always, um, always, you know, I, I appreciate all ways in which things are viewed, understood, um, seen, you know, heard, whatever felt. Um, I always appreciate all the ways in which um, encounters can happen with myself and with um, people who encounter the things I, I create. Your comment just a second ago about how you like to gather things that you're interested in and then share it with people reminded me of um, this question that that entered my head earlier when you were talking about how you would you would take images from magazines or the library and you would bring them with you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What did you do with those images? Because in my mind, and this could be completely wrong, but like you're scrapbooking them. Oftentimes, yeah, um, but I think I just needed to hold on to them. They were like picking a flower and holding on to it for a while. Sometimes you might put it in your journal and then see it uh, several years later, like, oh, I guess I put that there. Um, so oftentimes it was just the need, I wanted to have it nearby um, at all times so I can refer to it whenever I, I wanted to. Um, it was an idea of kind of scrapbooking or archiving or any of these intentional ways in which it was just simply, I need to have this. I don't know what it is. I don't know why, but I have to have this near me um, mm -hmm. at all times to be able to refer to it at any time. Um, and I, I think I still have that. Uh, I Once again, I wouldn't call it scrapbooking or archiving, but I have like, I think my phone has about, 200 tabs open right now. <laughs> I don't even know how many my computer has. Um, but it's just the fact that they're parked there. So um, I can always refer to them um, as I, I start to go through different ideas. Because I, I think that these encounters with these sort of encounters are, are kind of the spiritual and mystical thing that I, I, I try to, I'm, I'm trying to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I think those who decide to make their life, uh, decide to make creation as a, a major um, tenant in their life, uh, you open up this energy that uh, certain things start to gravitate towards you or orbit around you. Mm -hmm. And um, and you kind of open up that, that conversation between you and, and these other things. And the I think the more you kind of hone that and the more you kind of pay attention to these things that are floating around you at all times, the deeper that conversation becomes and then it becomes collaborative. Um, I don't look at anything I do as being a singular me doing it. I always look at it as I'm either a conduit or it's a collaboration, even if that collaboration is with, for instance, sound, you know, or something ephemeral like that, um, ephemeral like that. 
because it, it all exists. I, I guess I'm, I'm very fascinated with the, the things that our, our senses don't um, pick up on or our senses uh, distill, um, our mind distills from our experience. Um, I think that distillation process is something that we've evolved into, but I think that there was a time that uh, we didn't really distill information uh, as stringently as we do now, um, or strictly as also as we do now. So I think that we were opened up to what we now call mystical or spiritual experiences on a daily basis. Um, whereas now, because of our lives and the way our modern society are, is, um, we don't really think about the magic in, in anything anymore, even though us talking right now is absolutely magic. I mean, mm -hmm. this is just metal and different metals and different, you know, different quartz and different, you know, things that make up these devices yeah. that allow us to communicate across thousands of miles. I really liked what you said earlier about, you know, once you pay attention or surround yourself with an idea, you start getting more and more of that. You open the door to those ideas and that conversation. Over the years, do you think you have become more deliberate in the ideas you surround yourself with? Not over the years. I've always been that way. Um, okay. I'm one of those people who... Like, I have no idea what's happening in pop, pop culture right now. Um, like, I, I don't, I, I'm very guarded on the things I put in my mind because I, I knew at an early age the impact of, of things on me mm -hmm. um, for good and for bad. So I've, I've always been kind of really guarded on, on the things I put in. But then it, as you start to refine th these conversations, with um, the different uh, unseen things that are floating around us all at all times. Um, when you start to refine that conversation, uh, 
inherently you start to to be more selective of the things that you are putting into your brain because you just start to understand things um, in a differently. You know, I don't want to say at a different level because I don't want to put a hierarchy on on our ways of understanding. But just for me, just this is all just pertaining for me. Um, and I'm just more fascinated by uh, these things, and they just take up so much space on my mind. I, I don't really have time to, or uh, space or inclination to to do um, or look at things that don't fit that path. Um, mm-hmm. And it become, I guess, that's more of a obsession um, than anything. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but it was a little roundabout way of you know saying things. I had written these questions down and I wasn't going to ask them, but what you just said, like really just directed me to these questions. And, um, something that I noticed was that outside of your website and a personal Instagram, you don't have much online, you know, there, there's not much personal online activity from you. Is there a reason for that? And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you just kind of answered that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think I may have, um, I, I'm, I still have a reluctance to the idea of online presence. I understand how necessary it is nowadays. Um, but for me, there's a level of detachment that I always feel lurks in, in really having to establish an online presence. Mm-hmm. And you truly become detached. I mean, these things become um, avatars for you. And people then start to know you by your avatar. And I don't know how comfortable I've ever been with that. Um, I go through my stages, which I, I, I'll be really active on social media, uh, especially years ago. But then, like I said, more and more, I started to realize that people were knowing me as my avatar and not me. Um, and I'd kind of detached from that. Um, but then it's the idea of, uh, I have a lot of things that I would love, love to share, but I don't think in that still that detachment way that to share it online would, um, do anything but create further detachment. For instance, I, I haven't, really actively photographed in a long time but i do i photograph almost every day mm-hmm. but the things i photograph now are for my own um satisfaction and eventually uh there will be a, a time when i would share it publicly but just to do and then share and do and then share doesn't allow me to kind of live with or process or understand or collaborate or whatever that thing, that idea, that impulse is teaching me, I don't, I'm not with that long enough if I just do and share, do and share, do and share. Um, sometimes you have to let, uh, it's kind of like baking, you know, when you bake a cake, you don't take it out the oven and cut it right open. You have to let it sit, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and, and all these things. So, um, I guess I, I kind of look at my my creative side in the same way. You know, I might I'm not going to share the ingredients online and 
you know, right when it comes out the oven, there's no point in trying to cut it open. It's going to collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to sit for a while. And for me, I can enjoy it in that way. The smell is in the air and um, I can appreciate it uh, in a different way. And then when it's time to taste it, you know, I can savor it a bit more because I understood the different process that went into that collaboration for it to come into existence. Mm-hmm. What do you do with all the photographs you take? I keep them on a hard drive and I, I look at them and I kind of process them and I, I think about what's happening, um, what what this impulse is, what the idea is, and I jot down notes and I'm, I'm, I constantly note take um, anything that I'm doing as part of that, what I say, the collaborative effort with the idea. Um, I'm always kind of notating uh, the ways in which it, I encounter, it encounters me, uh, whether it's through dreams or daydreams or, you know, uh, these kind of practices of um, photographing or recording or doing whatever the case may be and living with that, that thing and, and letting it unfold um, slowly. Mm-hmm. So mostly what I do with it is just kind of tend to it until it um, really blossoms into something. Uh, and when it does that, I know it's time to to bring it out into the world and and share it. Do you remember the last note you took? Uh, Yeah, actually, I was reading um, an essay uh, on Cecil Taylor by a good friend of mine, Fred Moten, and he had a line uh, that said, um, the geometry of the blue ghost. And... I just I took that line and I started to riff with it and think about it in, in various ways, the geometry of a, of a blue ghost. Um, and it kind of has interesting resonance with the how I've been thinking about sound um, because I'm not thinking about sound simply as uh, a sonic encounter. You know, we, we know what a bird sounds like. We know what music sounds like. We know what our sonic environment is, even if we don't, even if it's just kind of background and we're not paying keen attention to it, we know what it is. I'm more, I'm very interested in that, but also uh, the propagation qualities of sound, not just how it fills a space um, as pressure waves, but what, you know, um, I, I, I think it's called like chalades or something like that, chalandis. Or, there's like a, a various ways in which we now know how sound looks, you know, mm-hmm. either in water or with um, sand or these certain things in which you put a frequency through and it forms a shape. So I'm, I'm very interested in that pressure wave moving through space, but as shape, you know, and not just a uh, vague sine wave type thing in which we normally look at sound as propagating space. It's just a, a wave like on water. Mm-hmm. But... Um, as shape that's actually moving through space and because it's shaped it changes space um in various ways um like if you ever lit a incense and just watch the smoke move it's constantly moving in these very intricate and beautiful ways and i just kind of imagine that sound is doing the same thing so to me that's like the geometry of the blue ghost or geometry of a blue ghost um it opened up that type of thought process. Now, what can I do with that 
artistically, creatively, create creatively. I haven't discovered that yet, but once again, it's that idea of dancing with these ideas, dancing with these entities, dancing with this energy, um, that it doesn't necessarily have to come out into something tangible. It's just the idea of playing with them um, and, and what unfolds during that playing, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like an you know, improvised way of making music with someone. Um, I'm a big fan of the music from specifically the 60s and 70s, the quote unquote free jazz movement um, and how a lot of it was improvised and but the improvisation is not lack of structure. There's a different thing happening um, that involves deep listening and understanding what um, what's happening. For instance, if one is soloing and and your next are you're accompanying the solo, the soloist, you pick up on certain things that they're doing, certain motifs in which you, you can hear that they're going for thought patterns that are inside of what they're they're riffing off of. You pick up on those and then you accompany it or you further it with your with your solo. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's the same thing with these kind of energetic um entities that become collaborate collaborators um it's almost like for instance in this idea of the shape of sound it's a solo that's happening and i'm picking up on the solo and when it's my time to to solo uh i'm, I'm gonna uh, extend what they opened up you know mm-hmm. you know i'm i'm uh genuinely taken aback at how much you really think about ideas how much how much thought goes into it <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's there's no question there that's just a comment <laughs> yeah I, I, yeah i don't even know where that comes from i mean i i, I guess i should um thank my uh ancestors and and elders and people in my life in which um have left this residue inside my spirit that that i'm that has maybe not residue these seeds inside my spirit that have have started to to really grow into different plants you know plants in my mind Uh, i don't want to use the flower motif too often but because i love (laughs) all type of plants um yeah and just i'm just really fascinated by how how once again, going back to the things that are beyond our our sensorial um, way of uh, being in the world. But I don't want to say beyond our sensorial way of being in the world, but because I think our senses are very, are far more complex than, than we've tapped into, and that's just science. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in really um, pushing my senses to the limit of understanding um, all this really amazing things that are are constantly around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not some utopic way of thinking about, oh yeah, the world's just so full of beauty and, and we just have to tap into it and, and, and live with it. And, and there's a horror and there's a beauty, beauty between it all. And the horror um, is, it's also fascinating to me, you know, destructive elements, for instance. Um, there's a ne- there's a necessity um, for that presence, um, 
and I'm just really curious of how these things kind of form into being, you know, um, I, that's a, once again, I, I kind of, I'm afraid I'm rambling it a bit, but, um, no, no, yeah, to me, it's, it's kind of the idea of when we really start to think about, um, stretching our sensorial intelligence, um, the more things start to make sense you know, as being either necessary part of the flow of things or a result of certain things. Um, so there's all, always this idea of causal and effect that we can tap into through our sensorial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So that's, 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 uh, <laughs> that's, that's the ideas that always are, are kind of undergirding um, my thoughts. On your website, I read that for this current exhibition titled To Hear the Earth Before the End of the World, you've been collecting biodata mm -hmm. from around the world to gain, quote, a ground zero understanding of our changing earth, unquote. How would you describe a ground zero understanding of our changing earth? I'll try to answer that um, with, I guess, some anecdotes. Uh, we hear about, for instance, uh, glaciers have became the portrait of our of climate change, you know, mm -hmm. um, and to understand what glacier melt, which is a natural phenomenon, it happens. Glaciers born and they die, just like everything uh, on this earth, and that death is not some final absolute, but a motion into another mode of existence and but to to for instance here to see experience chatter marks um these sort of things you can't read about you have to put it in your cellular memory and that can only happen through experience and i think that what that ground zero understanding is is um putting things in cellular memory through experience. And I just became fascinated by that. Once again, it opens up the, our kind of our sensorial intelligence. Um, and the more we have these encounters, the more we have a deep, deeper appreciation or understanding of, of what's happening with, um, with these sort of things in our world. My stomach just growled. I hope uh, that didn't no, come up. No, you're good. I heard that, but <laughs> I think my stomach's about to growl too. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I kind of skipped out on breakfast. I took a decaf coffee instead. Um, so hopefully that doesn't happen too often. But um, yeah, you, you, you know what I mean. Um, the idea of uh, our, our, that ground zero understanding is once again our... Uh, my sensorial intelligence, my, um, I guess, cellular level of, of understanding. Mm -hmm. And for your research, you traveled to places like Alaska, where you are now, yeah. Brazil and Europe. Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about the time you spent in those places? Well, they all were done before I knew what it was I was doing. Um, so there was a general impulse to go and to be, Brazil was actually the first opening of this, um, of this work. And while I was living in Bahia in Salvador, 
which is in the north part of uh, Brazil, in Bahia's state, uh, I encountered a lot of beautiful sonic happenings that uh, were were new to me. Mm-hmm. But then also I encountered um, uh, a poet, Vieira Galois. I'm probably completely butchering the name, but um, he had he was a very important Brazilian poet um, and a completely uh, important anti-dictatorship, anti-fascism poet who had been exiled um, many times. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and but he he wrote a uh, a poem called Bahulos, which translates into noise. And in that, in my kind of broken Portuguese um, slash translation um, because this poem is not translated in English so I was relying on friends to translate it for me um, so in this uh, unfolding of this poem it's kind of a lament of the sonic world in which he understood growing up in the countryside of Brazil into moving into the major cities like Sao Paulo and and these uh, and the difference between the two um, mm-hmm. and also going back these places in which he grew up with and because of the raising of the rainforest and the different um, mechanical destruction of, of these natural worlds, what he knew growing up was no longer. And it kind of opened me up to the idea of that sound can go as extinct, um, just like, um, you know, anything. And that along with uh, various other experiences kind of sent me into this uh thinking about what what um how i navigated through my sonic world um how i understood my sonic world um how i understood the the world in general sonically and that just kind of led me to try to put myself in more and more encounters um with the changing sonic spaces either with the changing sonic spaces are sonic spaces as they exist, um, but are in peril. Um, that kind of was the impulse. That was the start of it. And um, from there, it wasn't like there was any intention of going to different places around the world and, and doing these recordings. There were opportunities, for instance, residencies or certain projects in which I was traveling to do, mm-hmm. um, which I would always take my field recording um, kit with me and and steal away into different um, spaces and and try to do as many recordings as I could. Once again, it, this was just me dancing with the idea at the time. I didn't know what it was I was going to be doing. And the title, To Hear the Earth Before the End of the World, is actually a play off um, a dear mentor of mine, Ed Robeson's book, To See the Earth Before the End of the World, which is a line mm-hmm. in, in that a title poem and also a really beautiful line inside that poem. And that book, I think, is 2010, and, I, and I, I've been mysticized by that uh, that line for a long time. And it then, speaking of Bahulos and thinking about the changing sonic um, soundscape of, of uh, our world, to hear the earth before the end of the world just became, it made sense so that I asked him for permission to use that title. He, he, he granted me that permission. And, and it, once that happened, 
it all kind of fell into space into place about what the what what it was I was doing, and so then intention was now set, and from there um it just became about really putting myself in these spaces to understand and listen to and listen to deeply um the different ways in which sound is happening and around our world there's a uh, a friend of mine put me on to a um amazing uh, painter that I hadn't actually known about beforehand. His name is uh, Richard Mayhew. Uh, he's he's an abstract painter, but does landscapes, but in this really beautiful um, color-washed way, which he calls mindscapes. And I think that what I ended up um, thinking about mostly in these field recordings is not the sound in, of themselves, because I think there's many amazing and important field recorders out there who are legit science scientists and who have um who have done this for decades in, in a very important way i was more interested in kind of taking cues from wilson wilson harris's music of the living landscape is thinking about the mindscape of of these different sonic encounters and what it might mean and to give an idea of that is for instance, we can go outside right now. For instance, it's a nice breezy day here in Alaska. We can go outside and enjoy it. Um, it's it's warm. It's breezy. Uh, but and we can be you know pay no attention to the idea of the wind, but just feel it and it feels good on the skin. What what I'm interested in and what I end up doing is trying to hear the different motion of the wind. You know. The circularity of it, how it's moving, what trees it's affecting and what trees it's not, what, where is it coming from, um, and really try to image the the the, the shape of the wind mentally, mm-hmm. and in doing that, I'm I'm imaging also the the shape of the wind sonically, um, and then becoming fascinated by the idea of wind that really does it have a sound or are we just hearing the encounter um, as it encounters with trees, as it encounters with our ears, as it encounters with whatever it encounters when we hear the resonance from that, but we don't really hear the wind as it, as it is. We we don't have the capacity to, mm-hmm. but if we use our mindscape, then we can imagine, you know, not only the sound and shape of the wind, um, but different textures of it. Once again, like my example earlier of um, like smoke from an incense, you can you can actually see the the air in the room at play, moving the smoke. So if we can imagine folding that metaphor onto the sound that's moving all around, not just the wind, but all the um, sounds that are moving at the same time, and imagine it moving like smoke. Um, from an instant, you know, uh, in, in a still room. Now, now we're, we're getting to a, a place in which the imagination, um, you have to have, uh, a ticket with the imagination in order to, to, to go down that, uh, down that journey, you know? Mm-hmm. When I'm thinking about these sounds, that you have accumulated and on your website, you know, you describe them as glaciers cracking, smelling forest fires, the mechanical cacophony of land being raised, all felt on a cellular level. 
I'm thinking of, you know, natural sounds of disaster. And I wonder what sitting with and being inundated with all of those sounds might do to a person. Did you have any recurring thoughts or questions that were motivated or inspired by what you were listening to? No recurring questions. I, I guess if not, if anything else, it was deepening the curiosity mm-hmm. um, rather than opening up certain questions. I'm I, I have a lot. I really dance with ideas a lot, but I don't. I hardly have questions for it. Um, I'm more interested in in the different ways in which it's manifesting and and processing that, processing what I'm told rather than um, asking questions for clarity. Um, Because how things unfold, uh, they unfold in in their own time and questions will be answered with the unfoldment if one gives it patience. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I don't really have any recurring questions for it as much as just um, a different fascination. For instance, you know, the cacophony of land raise, raising, I, I wouldn't necessarily use that term anymore. Okay. Because I think that there is, um, it's not harmonious at all, obviously. Um, uh, the, the land <laughs> would prefer not to be, you know, destroyed in that way. Mm-hmm. But sonically, um, it there's a texture inside of it that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it creates harmony but harmony in, in, in a musical way. Um, the beeping of, of the machinery or the, the actual digging or the sound of that, you know, if you, if you listen to it, what everything else is happening, it becomes interesting, um, which is what I brought into the compositions, um, not to kind of make kind of villains and heroes and uh, victims and things like that within the sound, but to present it all in in a way that says that, hmm, there's a lot going on and there's, mm-hmm. and, and it can be fascinating as is, um, rather than to try to posit some type of, uh, theoretical framework for it, uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I I think that that is a really interesting way to go about something because, you know, me coming from a journalistic background, I'm thinking about, you know, meaning or what does this say about, you know, society or what we're doing to society or, you know, questions like that. But the way that you're going about this is this is what it is and here it is yeah it's kind of like entropy you know um where it's it's um there is there is a kind of i don't know an uncertainty in in information there's a a fullness in information but uh it's a malleability in the information Mm -hmm. um I think sound offers that that kind of entropic um, entropic kind of way of presenting itself, and and I guess that was the idea in these compositions to take the field recordings, for instance, and 
modulate, hypermodulate them, blur them, do all these kind of ways in which I manipulate the the sound of them, and then bring them into uh, existence with other sounds that might be uh, quote natural um, or even digital or uh, these sort of things, and, and letting them kind of move with each other and in kind of that same uh, metaphor of uh, um, smoke moving through a room, a still room. Um, and really to be able to understand and appreciate the the form um, of the experience and letting that be the door to the subconscious and um, kind of mindscape experience of of what's happening mm-hmm. so the idea is to, to create this kind of meditative space and one way to go about that is to present it in in a way in which there's no distinct preference of of, of sound but mm-hmm. allowing it all to kind of move and, and bend together and these are compositions it's not sound art in which i'm just taking things in in very concrete way you know i guess music concrete you know it's not it's not like that um there's an intention on how their flow their flow is and there's an intention on where the placement of the sounds are inside these compositions and so that's the guidepost um uh, how to move through it but what it what there isn't is a overarching a preference of certain sounds over others um at first it was i was really annoyed um by trying to do build recordings and for instance a a a plane goes by or you know um a car go something you know that's not what i wanted like let's say i'm recording bird sounds and i hear all these other things that aren't birds Mm -hmm. you know instead of getting annoyed by that and trying to get pristine bird sounds i just take the whole experience Mm -hmm. and bring it into um a larger experience, sonic experience, modulate them all in order to create um, uh, a flow, and then and then let that be, and let that unfold and move as it will. Um, so I don't know. If, <laughs> once again, I start to get on these little detours, and and I, I forget if I'm answering the question or not. But I hope I did. No, I think you. Uh you hit a point there that I completely agree with. You know, in these podcasts, often there are unforeseen sounds in the background, whether it's my background or your background. And I have actually come to love those sounds, whether it's um, construction upstairs in my apartment (laughs) or, you know, maybe a, a plane flying above head uh, on your end. And what I have come to really appreciate and love about those sounds is it makes this conversation very unique. You know, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. combination of sounds will never exist again. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty of it all. I mean, it, it's like clouds. You know, when you look up at a cloud, that formation you know, five minutes later, it's not going to be there anymore, nor will you ever see that again. Mm-hmm. Um, you might see things that look kind of like it, um, but it, it's it's different. And I like that. I like that idea. I like that different 
um, modalities of unfoldment um, that is all around. And it kind of goes through, it kind of takes me back to the whole idea of um, kind of our sensorial intelligence. I mean, we live in a way in which our our bodies create like a sphere around us and that, that sphere is our, is our experience. So mm-hmm. things that come in and out of that, that spherical um, sensorial experience um, is unique, you know? Um, and to me, I started to appreciate those different happenings that, ha- you know, come in and out of, of space, whether it's through sight, you know, you just kind of sitting back and watching the clouds go by. That's part of that experience. Or in my case, having my headphones on and listening to, um, listening through my microphones as um, being with the sounds of, of the environment. Um, it's, it's when it goes back to that always, always, you know, um, I, I've learned to kind of bring them all together and, and really appreciate the different ways in which um, it flows, you know, um, mm-hmm. instead of having something that's, uh, it's the reason why I, I, I hate metronomes and I hate um, quantized uh, things because, and I'm not, I'm not a really big fan of repetition um, because it's that idea of you, you already know it's happening. You already know what's happening. And um, what else do I, I don't, I don't need to, sit with it too much longer I, I kind of I get it but the idea of things you know coming in and out of space creates this um this natural flow of things that to me it just makes it all exciting you know um yeah yeah the full scope of this exhibit is about 12 hours long yeah how much of this do you expect a typical museum goer to sit through in order to understand the meaning and implications of it? I don't have any expectations. Um, now the nature of it also being installed in an installation like this is that I can't control when people, how people encounter it and when people encounter the composition. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, some somebody might go into the uh, installation and the track, that particular composition, let's say, Earth's composition might be 60% of the way done um, uh, moving through the composition, or it might be right at the very beginning. Um, but because it doesn't have any distinct rhythmic qualities that orient you to where you are in the track, um, you really have to have that patience with it to kind of sit with it and allow it to unfold in that in that way kind of talking about how it kind of piggybacks on what we just were talking about um and if you sit with it long enough uh structure might come for instance you might come in at the 60 minute at the 60 percent mark but stay you know for an hour and a half by that time you were heard um not only the resolution of that composition but the start of it again and you might actually have stayed there long enough where you are at the point in which you came in, you know, now it makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, cause now you've, you heard what came after the point of your entry and now you know what came before the point of your entry, you know? So it all unfolds itself in time, but I can't expect, um, I don't expect anyone to 
give it that type of attention. The the point is just to present it into the space, let it be in the space, and then you encounter it the way you encounter it. But the the beautiful thing about it, uh, for me, um, and I think uh, the nature of this type of sonic installation is when you go into the space, it encounters you. You don't encounter it. Mm. It's going to be playing in that space, whether you're in there or not. Um, and it reveals itself to you with patience. Um, you start to understand the the logic and the flow of it with with patience. But if you choose not to, then it just it withholds the re- the revelation of itself. Mm-hmm. So unlike um, you know paintings or any art that's on the wall that's waiting for you to encounter it, you know. You can walk through a gallery space and not look at anything and just walk right by into, like, let's say, another gallery space in which you had something that you were interested in seeing. So you may walk through three galleries to get to that one gallery in which you wanted to see that one object. All the things in that other, those other galleries in which you passed um, are just waiting for you to look at it, you know. Mm -hmm. They almost don't exist until you look at them. Whereas um, the nature of this this type of sonic exhibition is when you go in, it encounters you. You don't have time, like before you even, as soon as you walk through the door, um, it announces what it is. And, and now you have to, um, you have to be with it, (laughs) you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And we thought about things that could enhance the experience, like having it at showtimes, like a, like a movie or something like that. So people know, okay, this is the beginning of the track and it will end around, around this time. But I think the idea of it just constantly flowing means that you have to encounter it like nature. Um, and the length of that encounter is up to the visitor. Um, and whatever they choose is is fine with me. They can stay there all day or they can stay there for five seconds. And to me, it's all it's all good. When you look at this project, how do you think it fits with your other projects? Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if any of my, I don't know if all my projects actually fit together. I think that the only constant with everything that I've done is that it has come to and through me. But, um, when I kind of close the book on an idea, um, and open up the book of another, I I don't think about the continuity between the the two. Mm -hmm. I just become fully invested in, in this current idea and really um, being of service to the idea. I can look back and say that there's an evolution that allowed me to get to this point. For instance, I've been dibbling and dabbling in sound for a while um, and had encouragement to do so by mentors um, and have kind of played around and learned, for instance, synthesizers and and different ways in which I can create sounds. Um, I'm all self-taught. Um, I, I didn't go to art school or anything. Everything that you've seen from me is is a product of my own curiosity and teachers, um, uh, but not in a traditional way. Um, so for me, it's it's I'm always kind of trying to hone certain skills or are really um, master certain uh, techniques and. Uh, so there's, there's that, that kind of 
leads up to the ability to do the things I did with this this composition, these compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no distinct continuity saying, okay, well, this project kind of led into this project, kind of led into this project. Um, there was things that I've learned along the way that helped enhance the ways I can go about a project, a new project. But um, there's no overarching kind of things, which might be, uh, especially in the art world, uh, a bad thing because the art world kind of takes value in rarity and takes value in, in continuity. You know, they want to see a, a painter who's been doing the same type of paintings for 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and they want the rarity of it all. And someone who jumps all over the place like me without a specific bridge, bridge in between them, um, uh, I, 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 I think it's still on kind of this frontier of uh, uh, unappreciation. Uh, though I think that it's becoming less like that because you're seeing more and more people um, uh, promoting multimedia and um, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work. But uh, I, I, I don't think it still has the appreciation as it should. So. I wonder if you think you have a better or maybe a different personal understanding of the earth than you did when you started this project. You know, for instance, you said earlier that you probably wouldn't describe a sound as, quote, a mechanical cacophony of land being raised, unquote. So do I have a, a better understanding or uh, of a different understanding? I would say no. Um and I say that because it, it goes back to my upbringing. I remember growing up, sitting on the porch with my grandfather and him teaching me how to identify a storm's coming, you know, through the smell, uh, through the shape of the clouds, um, through the change in the wind, coolness in the air, you know, um, sound, like the silence that almost seem, seemingly almost always precedes storms coming. Um, so it's like that full body sensorial intelligence in which one um, really leans into and uh, in making sense of one's environment that I still think is uh, par excellence, you know, that I think what I'm doing is highlighting very specific modes of that full encounter rather than um, presenting that full encounter, which I don't know how I would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if it if it's given me a different or um, even better understanding. I think it's just me zeroing in on a very specific understanding um, and, and really teasing that out. Um, mm-hmm. And though I, I do believe that by that, it opens up my understanding a lot deeper and I'm, I'm able to take things that I probably took for face value earlier or when I was younger um, and understanding in a deeper, um, more intricate way, I would say that. But I wouldn't say what I'm doing is specifically, um, what I've done has specifically given me a better or different understanding. But 
it has given me an understanding of my limitations. For instance, what I said about just the be the idea of being able to um, sensorially understand a storm without needing to have a, a you know meteorologist forecast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to be able to get to the point where I can present it the creative idea as quote unquote art in that way in which just to go in and encounter opens up all these other intelligences that one can either as latent as someone and now it's just it it becomes unlocked or it really challenges someone to understand things in a different way um because it that's how it originates with me so in a, in a way it it does open up a different understanding but i I think of it as um, being a part of the same thing. Uh, it's just a step in the journey. Um, it's no different for me than um, being in this room right now or stepping outside. The fact is, I'm still, I still feel like I'm in the house, you know, by the house, though I'm not mm-hmm. inside the house. Even if I'm outside, I still know that the house, I'm, I'm on the property. It, it all fits. It's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just the difference. I'm either in a different room or, and I'm looking at the layout of this room rather than the entire house, um, or I'm just outside or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I like the idea and I, 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 this is kind of like something that just came to me. So it's not really full form, but, um, it, it I like the idea of a house um, and the different rooms in that house having very specific feels. You know, um, your bedroom feels different than your living room. You know, the kitchen feels different than the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all the same house, but depending on where you are in that house, it feels different. Um, and to have someone in that room feels different, you know. Um, and I think that that is similar to... Um, the way uh, these encounters have kind of opened up things for me. I just now I'm able to not just look at the entire house, but I'm able to say, oh, the living room feels different than the bedroom mm-hmm. <laughs> in the house, you know. Yeah. And I know I can intuit the difference, though I may not yet be able to articulate that difference. Well, Lamont, that does it for my questions. You know, I, I wanted to let you know that I, I really appreciated your perspective and I, um, you know, it, it, it's taken me a little bit to wrap my mind around this stuff because like I said earlier, you know, I'm coming from like this journalistic perspective where there needs to be an answer or at least like a, um, an attempt and an answer you know, to make sense of certain things. And the way that you look at things is actually pretty beautiful, you know, that, that they just happen. And, um, you know, we're talking about nature here. So, you know, those, those, Mm -hmm. those natural things are just happening and you're recording them. But there also needs to be a question there, not a specific question, but that question is a curiosity. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's like, the grand question. The grand question is, is, is curiosity. Um, it's inarticulable as a question, but your curiosity can lead you there. Um, and I'm just really fascinated in the different intricate spaces of happenings of existence that my curiosity leads me to. That's great. 
do you have anything else you'd like to add? I, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I'm very good at, well, not maybe not very good at, but I, I like answering questions, but I'm terrible at asking questions or even having like a final, uh, something to say. I, I kind of really stay in the moment. Like I'm very much an improviser, you know, I, I, I just like the flow of things. And I, I, now that the flow is coming to an end, I guess we're at the head of the composition now. Um, and we're about to vamp out. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.